You are listening to the Catholic Thinkers Podcast, a free treasury of instruction in the Catholic intellectual tradition. If you enjoy this lecture, please visit us at catholicthinkers.org forward slash donate. This course is from our International Catholic University Classics Collection, originally recorded between 1995 and 2005. Praise be Jesus Christ. Welcome to our ongoing series, An Introduction to Catholic Moral Theology. You know, up to this point, we've been talking about the moral life, the immoral life. We've been making distinctions between formal and material human acts. We've been talking about the moral object of the act, the circumstances, the intention. In many ways, the language which we've been using hasn't sounded particularly religious, if you will, or particularly Christian. I had said in the first show that those actions which the Catholic Church considers to be immoral, it considers to be immoral for everyone. In other words, our morality is based on the natural law. We can understand what actions will fulfill the human person, which ones will not, based on objective criteria which can be seen in God's creation itself. So there's a universality about Catholic teaching. But there is a dimension to our understanding of human morality which goes beyond that of those who are not Christian. In other words, we see immoral actions as not only diminishing the potential fulfillment of an individual human being, but we also see these actions as being an affront against God, as being a violation of God's holiness, of His righteousness. We see certain actions as being not simply immoral, but as being sinful. That is, of having a devastating, debilitating, destructive, cosmic dimension to them, which far surpasses any reflections on human act understood as simply immoral, if you will. Sin and evil are two of the most frightening concepts that we ever encounter. It's perplexing. It's destructive. It's pervasive. It seems to take hold of us when we don't want it to. We try to seek the good and find that we're crippled somehow and that we can't. In our own century, we have seen unspeakable acts committed by human beings against other human beings. So unspeakable that we can hardly talk about them. They surpass the ability of the human language to describe the cruelty and evil that human beings have visited upon one another. We're aware that something is out of joint. There's some cosmic dimension to this human experience that surpasses anything that we simply encounter in our philosophy books. We are concerned that we gain an understanding into this phenomenon of sin because, in a way, it is going to describe more adequately and more fully what is going on than is possible through the use simply of philosophy. We are creatures. We have been created by God and for God. God created us for our happiness, for our own fulfillment, and yet we have violated that and brought terrible disorder and destruction upon ourselves. God did not bring evil in the world. God did not create sin. 
we human beings have brought it into the world. As John Henry Cardinal Newman said, there was some dreadful primordial event that set the world into disorder. And of course, we know that this dreadful primordial event was the sin of our first parents, the sin of Adam and Eve, which was so debilitating and disordering that the human race has suffered the consequences ever since. And we see that human beings have always been aware of this disorder and have always been aware of a certain transcendent dimension to it. It's not that human beings simply were incapable of leading upright and virtuous lives. But there was a way in which something beyond human beings and human ends was violated here. And so we find virtually all the religions in the world offering up sacrifices to God or to their gods as they understood them in an attempt to bring about a reconciliation and to reintroduce order back into the world, to try to find that primordial harmony and peace and integrity and justice that were lost at some point in the past. And virtually every people on earth had some story about what had resulted in this initial disorder. And we know that all the sacrifices offered, all the prayers sent up, all the incense burned, that none of it was ever sufficient, none of it was adequate, because human sin not only disordered the human person, but it violated the goodness of God himself. And if one would try to make up for that offense, one could try as one might, but it was simply impossible. Because how could finite human beings ever make up for an offense against God's infinite majesty? There was simply no way out. There was no way of finding some kind of reconciliation. Even Franz Kafka in the last century, who was a Jewish-German writer who lived in Prague in what is now the Czech Republic, wrote a book called The Trial and he was a secular Jew, he was not a believer, and his whole book deals with this human awareness that something was wrong, something was out of order, and that we are under judgment. And the protagonist in this novel goes throughout the palace of the Ministry of Justice trying to find out who has condemned him, what he has done that has left him guilty. So we see in this novel by Kafka a modern awareness, even today, even among people who are not believers, that somehow we are under uh, judgment. Somehow we are under a sentence, a dreadful sentence. Somehow we have done some great offense which has resulted in our guilt. Now, we know, thanks be to God, that the means has been found to bring about reconciliation between us and God who, after all, is the source of order and harmony for the whole created order, that a means of reconciliation has been found. Human beings were incapable of doing it. Human beings could not offer any sacrifice which would have been sufficient to propitiate the offense which was done against God's holiness. And so God himself met the demands of his own justice. God himself, in the second person of the Trinity, became man, became sin for our sakes, offered himself upon the cross, and offered the full and perfect sacrifice to the Father, which was able to reconcile the world to him. 
and after that unspeakably great and loving deed, we all now have the possibility of being reconciled with God and of being reconciled to one another. But it is impossible anywhere other than in Jesus Christ. There is no name under heaven by which we are saved than that of Jesus Christ. So we can't really talk about moral theology. We can't really talk about the moral life of the Christian without relating it to the one who capacitates us, who enables us, empowers us to lead the moral life. There is no reconciliation with the Father and with one another outside Jesus Christ. So if we talk about moral theology, we have to understand it as these sinners returning to their Father God through the only way that He has opened for them, and that is in His Son, Jesus Christ. And the way in which we are united to Christ is through the sacrament of baptism. It is through baptism that we enter into His mystical body. And of course, His mystical body on earth is the Catholic Church. So we have to see that the Catholic Church provides the framework for the Christian moral life. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me, says St. Paul. This is the key to our understanding moral theology. It is not I who live any longer in terms of this fallen, frail, and broken sinner, but it is Christ who lives in me. If I am capable of doing any good, if I am capable of leading any kind of virtuous existence, it is because Christ's life is within me, because Christ's grace has been bestowed on me and fills me and capacitates me and enables me to lead this new life. So we have to set the setting of the Catholic moral life in the church where we have been made one with Jesus Christ and he then becomes, if you will, the norm for all moral behavior. I mean, St. Paul at one time was upbraiding the Corinthians for their immoral practices. And they were being very immoral. And some of them were baptized. They had already turned to Christ. And yet they were continuing to lead these dreadfully immoral lives. And St. Paul is horrified at the thought. But at one point, he speaks of a man who would go visit a prostitute. And he doesn't say how dreadful that would be that you're violating God's commandment to go visit a prostitute. Rather, Paul says, would you have Christ lie with a prostitute? Now, St. Paul was so aware of our union with Jesus Christ that whenever we would commit an immoral act, it's not simply a disordered act. It's not simply an immoral act anymore. It becomes, in a sense, an act of sacrilege that we involve Christ in this evil act that we're performing because we're now one with Him. And it's fascinating in the renewal true renewal of moral theology that is occurring through the writings of our Holy Father and other great moral theologians who have been faithful to the magisterium of the church, they have moved away more and more from a law ethic, from being concerned about the moral life in terms of a conformity to the law, and seeing that the Catholic moral life is living out the life of Jesus Christ in the world. If we live the life of Jesus Christ in the world, if we surrender ourselves to the Father and to others as Jesus Christ has done, the commandments will be fulfilled. There is this mystical union that we now have with Christ, and out of love for Him, 
we wouldn't do the kinds of acts that we might be tempted to do. Not because there's a law against them, but because it would be an unspeakable violation of the one whom we love beyond all telling, who is Jesus Christ himself. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And Jesus Christ becomes the norm and the means of the moral life, which brings us into harmony and reconciliation with other people, and which will bring us back to union with God. In a way, we're now getting into the really exciting part of understanding the Catholic moral life, and that is seeing it as a life lived in Jesus Christ. As I was saying, we have been reconciled with God in Christ. Now, I was saying before that uh, ours is a teleological understanding of the moral life. We have the moral life ordered toward a goal. And on the natural level, that goal is the virtuous life, a well-ordered and harmonious life. But we've been called to a life beyond the natural. The end of our life is no longer simply a virtuous, well-ordered, balanced life in this life. Now the telos, now the end, now the teleological orientation of our life is God himself. So that we now come to live the divine life. We read in 1 Peter that in our baptism, we have become partakers of the divine nature. It's an inconceivable thought. We could never think that we would ever be able to live the life of God himself had it not been bestowed upon us, had it not been revealed to us. God had such love for us that he has enabled us to live his life, to share in the life of the Trinity itself. We read in Colossians, it pleased God to make absolute fullness reside in Christ and by means of him to reconcile everything in his person, both on earth and in the heavens, making peace through the blood of his cross. I'm saying the last segment, that it was through Christ's offering of himself on the cross of Calvary that the demands of God's justice were finally fully met. In Christ, Paul goes on and says, in Christ the fullness of deity resides in bodily form. Yours, St. Paul says, is a share of this fullness. The Christian moral life is sharing in the fullness of deity which resides in bodily form in Jesus Christ. This is a vocation beyond anything that we could ever have hoped for. But where do we realize the fullness of this life? Well, Paul tells us in Ephesians that Christ is the head of the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills the universe in all its parts. The church, the church is the body of him, the fullness of whom fills the universe in all its parts. Through the Catholic Church, we come to share in the life of Christ himself. We come to share, actually, in the redemptive work of Christ himself. Now, we were talking before about the natural moral life, saying that we are capacitated, we are enabled to live that life when we develop virtues within ourselves. A good habit is a virtue. In other words, we perform right kinds of actions so frequently 
that we have developed a habit within ourselves. A habit is a certain modification of our nature which enables our nature to achieve its ends well or poorly. If the modification of our nature which helps us achieve our end is a good modification, so we're achieving our end well, we call it a good habit or a virtue. If the modification of our nature leads us away from our true end, diminishes our capacity for the good life, modifies our nature in such a way that we don't accomplish our ends as well anymore, it's called a bad habit or a vice. So the virtues are really the powers that enable us to live out the good and wholesome life that we are seeking. But what about on the supernatural level? If we have these powers in us on the natural level, which are known as virtues, don't we also need supernatural virtues to enable us to lead the supernatural life? Because the supernatural life is not ours by nature. It is something that's given to us, something which we could never achieve or reach on our own, no matter how hard we practiced, how hard we worked. We would never, ever, on our own, become perfect as our Heavenly Father is perfect. We could never, on our own, achieve this reconciliation with God. We could never, on our own, come to be partakers in the divine nature. But once we are, once we have become partakers of the divine nature, don't we now need new powers? Doesn't our nature have to be modified so that we can achieve our supernatural end well? Well, yes, it does. It has to be modified. How is it modified? Through the action of God himself. We refer to grace as a kind of habit because grace actually modifies our nature, enabling us to live the divine life. Sanctifying grace makes us holy. Sanctify means to make holy. There's only one who is holy, and that is God. But sanctifying grace acts within us to join us to God in Jesus Christ. So when sanctifying grace enters our lives, it modifies our nature in such a way that our nature is now capacitated, empowered, enabled to lead this supernatural existence so that we can attain our new end, which is life forever with God, which is called the beatific vision, as we were saying before, as, as two lovers just look upon one another and have utter fullness and happiness and joy in being in one another's presence. So sanctifying grace is, as I say, a habit, a modification of our nature enabling us to lead the supernatural life. But then we need specific powers because, after all, we are thinking human beings, we are willing human beings. We have these powers within us that we have to engage to live the natural moral life. Are we given gifts that enable us to lead lives and to carry out particular acts in the life that we have been granted? by God in Christ. Yes, these powers are known as the theological virtues of faith, hope, and charity. With faith, we are able to engage the intellect. Faith is like a virtue. It's a power that enables the intellect to assent to truths about God that we could never know through the powers of natural reason. Faith is a trust in God 
that is so complete that we will assent to propositions about God which he himself has revealed to us. So faith enables us to believe that God is a trinity, for example. One God, but three persons. That Jesus Christ is both God and man. These are not powers of the flesh. These are gifts which we have been given. We also have the power of hope so that we believe firmly that God will bring us to him in heaven so that we might live with him forever, that he will provide the means for us to attain to him. And those means are the sacraments of the church. We believe that if God has called us to life with him, he is going to provide us with the means necessary to come to him. He will be trustworthy and he will empower us to come to him. And of course, that great power that fills all of these actions that truly binds us to God in Jesus Christ is the third theological virtue, is charity, is caritas, is love. The love of God flows through all of these virtues and enables us to come to him. It's not enough, for example, just to know who God is. We have to love him. So to have faith without love, it's not true faith at all. I mean, look at the demons. Remember when the demons encountered our Lord? They knew who he was. Did they love him? No. There was the man who was possessed, had many demons within him, and, and encounters Jesus Christ. And the demons shout out within him, Depart from us, O Holy One of God. They knew who he was, but they didn't love him. It's not enough just to have faith. We must also have love. And as one theologian has put it, this trinity of divine virtues, that is, of faith, hope, and charity, this trinity of divine virtues in the unity of sanctifying grace is an image of the most holy trinity, one in nature, three in person. When sanctifying grace is present, we have the virtues of faith, hope, and love that enable us to lead that life to which we have been called in Jesus Christ. Now, once we have been given this great gift, nothing is more frightening than the loss of it. If we are madly in love with a young woman, if we want to spend the rest of our life with her, nothing can become more unsettling than the thought of somehow losing her and losing her love. And the same is true for our relationship with God. Immorality, then, isn't simply a matter of saying, well, golly, I've missed the mark. I haven't quite done as well as I should. There are certain acts of immorality which are so grave, which are so dreadful, that they would destroy this life of love with God, that they would be what we call sins, they wouldn't simply be a missing of the mark. And one of the Greek words that the Bible uses for sin can be translated a missing of the mark. We do miss the mark. God is our goal, our end. And when we sin, we're sent off into another direction. But another word for sin found in the Bible is that of rebellion. It's acting against God. It's rising up against him. It's saying that we don't prefer you above all things. 
It's saying we don't love you with our whole heart, our whole soul, and all of our mind. It means that we're willing to break this relationship with you. And this is the horror of sin because God alone can provide us with complete peace and joy and happiness. After all, God has created us for himself. He has redeemed us in Jesus Christ. And the thought of losing him should fill us with horror. And that is why the thought of sin should fill us with a unique horror that we would rather do anything than offend God and run the risk of losing his love. We read in Colossians again, in Christ the fullness of deity resides in bodily form. Yours is a share of his fullness. This is what has been offered us in Jesus Christ. This is the pearl of great price. This is that good beyond all human telling. St. Augustine one time said, never love anything you can lose against your will. He didn't mean we don't love other things, but he said, don't invest your full love in anything you can lose against your will. What's the only thing we cannot lose against our will? We can lose our loved one. We can lose our possessions. We can lose our good name. We can lose life itself. But there's one thing that can never be lost against our will, and that is God himself. Augustine found this great good in Jesus Christ. He said, my heart was restless, O God, until it found its rest in thee. Augustine had searched and had wandered and had studied philosophies and lived with one woman and then with another woman. He had searched all over and he hadn't found any peace. But finally that peace and joy and fullness was found in Jesus Christ in a life offered to him beyond anything that the philosophies of the world which he studied held out to him. And so we don't want to run any risk of losing this great good. And when we lose it, we're the ones who are hurt. This is what St. Thomas meant when he said in his Summa Contra Gentilis, I've used this quote again, I may use it every segment. St. Thomas said, God is offended by us only when we act against our own good. When we sin, we're only acting against our own good. We're only hurting ourselves. And so we should be willing to say anything before sin. I will endure anything rather than sin because this means my death. It, it means the end of things. It means my, the end of my peace and my joy and my hope. And the Catholic Church is uncompromising about this. This is why the Church insists that there are moral absolutes. In other words, there are certain actions which are so dangerous, so destructive, that to perform them results in killing ourselves. This is why the church insists on moral absolutes, not to keep us from the good, not to keep us from human fulfillment, but to help us cling to the good regardless of the costs, regardless of the circumstances, regardless of the consequences. We will cling to the good. The church has sometimes insisted on this in such powerful language that people recoil from it. But John Henry Cardinal Newman, in the story of his conversion, his book Apologia Pro Vita Sua, writes the following with regard to the seriousness of sin and the insistence on moral absolutes. Cardinal Newman wrote, The Catholic Church holds it better for the sun and moon to drop from heaven for the earth to fail 
and for all the many millions on it to die of starvation in extremist agony, as far as temporal affliction goes, then that one soul, I will not say should be lost, but should commit one single venial sin, should tell one willful untruth, or should steal one poor farthing without excuse. Those are powerful words. Those are shocking words. But what they are saying is nothing can compare to the pearl of great price. Nothing can compare to the joy and the peace and the love and the hope which we have in Jesus Christ. Don't be deluded, Newman says. There may be other things which are attractive to you, but there is just no comparison between temporal affliction which we might suffer in this life, such as even the loss of our physical life. There's no comparison between the possible loss of our physical life and the loss of our supernatural life, the loss of our eternal happiness with God in Jesus Christ. Nothing could be worse than losing that. This is what has driven the martyrs to enable them to embrace death rather than to sin by rejecting Jesus Christ or profaning His holy name or blaspheming. The Holy Father wrote an encyclical on moral theology, Veritatis Splendor, and it has three major sections in the encyclical. And in the first section, the Holy Father talks about the rich young ruler coming to Jesus Christ, seeking what he must do in order to attain everlasting life. And our Lord says, if you kept the commandments, you remember the story. The young man says, yes, I've kept all the commandments. And Jesus says, well, well and good, you have, but that's not enough. Now sell all that you have and come back and follow me. And the young man was unable to do it and went away with a sorry heart. Now, the Holy Father tells that as a way of illustrating the search of all human beings for the good and as a way of illustrating that the final satisfying good can be found only in God. After all, this young man had kept all the commandments. Jesus didn't say, no, you didn't keep all the commandments. He said, no, you did. But it's not enough. The only one who ultimately satisfies is God himself. Only God is good. So the Holy Father lays that out, if you will, in the first part of his encyclical. Then he turns to contemporary approaches to moral theology which are not sound, which are leading people astray. And this is a very philosophical section of the encyclical. It requires some philosophical and theological background to read and to appreciate. But he takes these various approaches to moral theology apart philosophically and theologically and shows their weaknesses. He talks about proportionalism, which denies absolute moral norms and says that we can perform certain what they call ontic or premoral evils for a greater good. And the Pope shows why this is an inadequate approach to the moral life and leads us to compromise with evil. And he goes on and deals with other ones as well. But then he moves to the third part of the encyclical and says, you know, we have applied the tools of the intellect, of philosophy and theology to these erroneous moral methodologies. He says, you know, the secret of the moral life 
for the Christian within the church isn't found here in our ability to see the errors of these ways, that's not going to lead us to a life of happiness and fulfillment. He goes on in the third part of the encyclical and says, the secret to the moral life is our holding our gaze fixed upon Jesus Christ. And not just Jesus Christ, but Christ crucified. In other words, Christ was so fixed to the good, he was so intent upon doing the will of his heavenly Father that he would have suffered anything rather than violate that good. And so Christ becomes the proto-martyr, if you will, the first martyr. Christ shows us how we are to live the moral life, that never are we to turn from God because these will only be false goods. They're not true goods. The only true good is God himself. And this is what our Lord clung to. And this is what the martyrs have always clung to. We have two classical definitions of sin which were given us by St. Augustine. He says, sin is any thought, word, or deed against the eternal law, which is the divine ordinance of reason commanding order to be observed and forbidding its disturbance. Now, we talked before about the eternal law being the mind of God ordering all things toward their created ends. And the human mind is capable of knowing that to a considerable degree. And the natural law is our rational conscious participation in that eternal law so that we act in accord with the ends for which God has created us. So that sin would be any thought, word, or deed against the eternal law, which is the divine ordinance of reason commanding order to be observed and forbidding its disturbance. So if we act against the eternal law, in other words, if we no longer acknowledge the mind of God ordering all things to their created ends, toward what purpose? Toward the purpose of goodness and showing forth His glory, we bring disorder into the world and we suffer from that disorder. But Augustine goes on and gives us another definition of sin which explains some of its allure. He says, sin is an aversio a deo conversio a creatorum. Sin is a turning away from God towards some created good. Now, the interesting thing here is that Augustine is saying there's an element of good even in the sinful acts that we choose. It's the element of good in the proposed course of action that we are contemplating. It's that element of good which is providing any attraction at all for us. It's interesting that the Catholic Church has such a positive understanding of the world and of human nature and of God that it sees even in sin some element of good. We don't have the doctrine of the total depravity of the human person, which classical Protestantism has. We don't hold that the human person is totally depraved so that in no way can he ever do any good. We would see that even though we have been terribly wounded by original sin, the sin of Adam and Eve that we have inherited, even though we are wounded still further by our actual sins that we commit, our own personal sins, that we still have that power for the good, that we're still drawn to some good. 
And that's the problem with sin, you see. We recognize some element of good there. The problem is we are seeking a good in a disordered way. We are seeking a fleeting good. We are seeking some transient good. We are seeking some partial good rather than God himself. Rather than that transient good properly ordered toward God. This is what leads to disorder in the world. But this is also what provides the allure to sin that we find attractive in the first place. So this is why it's so critically important that we have clarity of vision about the actions that are being proposed to us because we want to make sure that the goods which we choose, the actions which we choose, are truly and properly ordered to God within His scheme, within His plan of things, so that we can find fulfillment according to God's plan because that's the only plan that counts. Sin is the free choice of some created transient good rather than God himself. Okay, it's a choosing of some good rather than the ultimate good. When we act morally, we are indeed choosing transient goods, but we're choosing them in a way that allows us to be ordered toward God. We are choosing them in a proper and ordered way. We recognize and respect these transient goods as being reflective of and as leading us to the ultimate good which is God himself. Now, there's nothing worse than sin. Nothing worse than sin. And so the church has reflected a great deal on what constitutes sin and what we have to do to avoid it and how we can be restored to God when we have sinned. And the church makes some distinctions between kinds of sin. We've already talked about original sin, this is a sin for which we ourselves are not guilty because we haven't committed the sin, but nonetheless leaves us disordered, leaves us suffering from what the theologians call concupiscence. Concupiscence is this disordering of our passions which has resulted from original sin. It's that disordering of the passions that leads us to choose some transient good in a disordered way. Concupiscence, we teach, isn't itself sinful. It results from actual sin. It results from original sin and then from subsequent actual sins. And it also leads to actual sin, but itself is not sin. But is this disorder from which we suffer. And as the Council of Trent said, if anyone says that the sin of Adam did hurt to him alone and not to his posterity, or that the sanctity and justice which he received from God he lost for himself and not for us also, or that he did not transmit sin, which is the death of the soul, to the whole human race, let him be anathema, let him be condemned. In other words, Adam's sin and Eve's sin did have cosmic consequences for which we all continue to suffer. But that's original sin of which we are cleansed in baptism when the waters of baptism flow over us as infants Original sin is washed away, but some of the consequences of original sin, such as concupiscence, remain. Then we also face actual sin, which are the specific sins which we commit. We are tempted. We reflect on the temptation. Regrettably, we succumb to the temptation. We commit the sin ourselves. We are fully responsible for that sin and for the consequences which flow from it. 
The personal sins, of course, are the sins which we commit, which are really the only ones for which we are culpable. We now hear talk today of sinful social structures and social sins, but social sins are really the result of individual, personal, actual sins that people commit for which they themselves are responsible. There sometimes come in place sinful social structures which have to be changed, but then again, it's the people responsible for changing them who have to do so and will incur guilt for themselves if they don't work to change these sinful structures. There's also a technical term known as habitual sin. There's confusion over this term today. Habitual sin does not mean a sin that I commit over and over and over again, that it has become a habit. Now, there are theologians today who use the term in that way, but that is not what the original meaning of the term habitual sin was. I was saying earlier that a virtue is a modification of our nature, enabling us to attain our ends well. This modification of our nature is what a habit is. So a good habit is a virtue. I was also saying that sanctifying grace is a habit. It modifies our nature to enable us to lead the supernatural life. When we sin, we are no longer able to lead the supernatural life because we have lost that life. We've lost the relationship with God and Jesus Christ through this offensive act that we have committed. So we then suffer from a habitual sin. In other words, there's been a modification of our nature again that has to be overcome. Traditionally, if you come across this in older moral theology texts, a habitual sin is a sin that we have not repented of. It's an unrepented sin. And as long as we haven't repented of such a sin, we remain in the effects or consequences of that sin, even if we never commit it again. We might commit adultery only once and never again, but if we don't repent of it, it's what the theologians call a habitual sin, okay, because we have not repented of it. You all also know the distinction between mortal and venial sin. Now, a habitual sin, which has lost us the life of God in Jesus Christ, is really only a mortal sin. A mortal sin is, if you will, a true sin, a real sin. A mortal sin is a death-dealing sin. It destroys God's life in us. It's a death-dealing blow to the supernatural life which God has given us in Jesus Christ. And we can never have that life back until we repent of that sin and are restored through the sacrament of reconciliation. We can see this on the natural level. If a husband and wife were in some fight and regrettably there were hateful, spiteful words said between the two of them, and let's say the man, God forbid, struck his wife, there would be a rupture of that relationship. And obviously, there would never be a restoration of that relationship until there was some act of reconciliation. I mean, the man the next morning could feel terrible about it, but if he came down to the kitchen table and just tried to lean over and kiss his wife, good morning, you can bet that he wouldn't be kissed back or even allowed to kiss her. She needs some expression of remorse and sorrow for what he has done, then she must forgive him. The barriers must be removed before the lifeblood of their love can be restored to their relationship and they will be reconciled and can live that one life again. The same sort of thing happens in our life with God. 
There are some things which are just so hateful, which do such violence to the relationship which we have with God, that the relationship's been destroyed. The life is gone. And it can't be restored until we express some sorrow for that sin and are restored by God's action in the sacrament of reconciliation. Well, what kind of sin would constitute a mortal sin? We say there are three conditions that have to be met for a sin to be mortal. The person has to know what they are doing. There has to be sufficient reflection on what they're doing. They have to freely choose to do it. They're not being forced into doing it. And it has to be what we call grave matter. It has to be something very serious that is done. Well, most of the debate has centered around this question of grave matter. What constitutes grave matter? Usually the theologians would say those very things that are contained in the Ten Commandments constitute grave matter. Murder, theft, adultery, and those kinds of acts which are related to the injustices which are reflected in those kinds of actions. For example, fornication is also grave matter. In fact, we say that any sexual act always is grave matter because our sexuality is ordered toward the great good of human life itself and because our passions are so strong that if we give in to these kinds of sins, they very easily can take over and become set habits and patterns of behavior for us. Now, it's not enough just to have grave matter. We also have to be free to perform the act. Now, it might be that we've performed an act which is gravely wrong, but we've done so because we were threatened, and so we did it out of fear. Well, then we haven't acted freely, and so we aren't guilty of a mortal sin. It might be that there is a grave matter involved in what I am doing, but I don't know that. I don't realize that it's grave matter, but I choose to go ahead and act anyway. If I don't know it's grave matter, I can't be guilty of mortal sin there. So even though an act might be gravely disordered, if I don't know it is, and I don't know it's offensive to God, I have not truly committed a mortal sin and lost the divine life. Now, there are also venial sins. Venial comes from the Latin word which means light. And here we have not sin in its true sense. We have done something wrong. We have been thoughtless, if you will. We haven't sufficiently reflected on what we were doing. We've offended God in some way, but it misses the mark of a good and wholesome life. But it did not manifest in any way an angry rebellion against God or a rejection of his life. The church has always held that this is the distinction, mortal and venial. No more really are needed. One of the things that has happened with the revisionist theologians that you've heard about is that in their denying that there are any absolute moral norms and in their softening of the demands of the moral life, have come up with some ideas that leave us thinking that it's almost impossible to commit a mortal sin. Some of these revisionist theologians talk about something called the fundamental option. If we have fundamentally opted for God at some deep level of our being, then the more surface actions that we commit, even though it may be something like adultery, may not really change that fundamental option and will not lose this life in God. So they will talk about the fundamental option, then they will talk about a mortal sin being this rejection of the fundamental option, changing the fundamental option. They will talk about venial sin, but then they wind up talking about serious sin, sometimes called grave sin. It's somehow intermediate between mortal and between venial. But 
the Orthodox theologians and our Holy Father himself has rejected this distinction and has insisted that we are, regrettably, all too able to commit mortal sin, that if we choose something which is gravely disordered and we freely do it and we do it knowledgeably, that we have acted against this life which has been granted us in Jesus Christ. And the only way in which we can be restored to God's favor is through the sacrament of reconciliation, where the priest, with the power and authority given him by Jesus Christ himself, forgives the sin and reconciles us to the Father. And in this we have the great hope that we might be restored to the life that has been granted us in Jesus Christ. We hope you enjoyed listening to Catholic Thinkers. Please visit us at catholicthinkers.org forward slash donate to help us keep this content free.